Welcome to the International Classroom, a podcast for educators living and working in the United Arab Emirates. I'm your host, Alex Gray, and this is episode five. Today, we're thrilled to have Philip Ride, an expert in the gaming and esports industry, joining us on the show. Philip has spent over 22 years in the industry working on popular titles like FIFA at EA Sports. He's also passionate about bridging the gap between education and entertainment, using gaming to improve math skills and build stronger relationships between parents and their children. In this episode, we'll be diving into Philip's extensive experience and insights into the world of gaming and esports. So sit back, relax, and let's get started. Philip Ride, thank you ever so much for joining me on today's podcast. Um, I'm going to dive straight into this in terms of where you're at and how you've got to be there at this moment in time. Thank you, Alex. Great to be here. <sighs> Great first question. How, where did I come from and what am I doing and how did I get here? Um, so I am new to education. Um, you know, I, I'll hold my hand up and say that I'm not a teacher, but I've been working in the video games industry for the past 22 years. Um, and I've, I'm making that transition to try and use the knowledge and experience that I've got in the games industry to support teachers and parents because we know a lot of children obviously through the pandemic spent a lot more time playing games on devices so i'm trying to support them in you know okay why do children love to play what are those game experiences and then how can we actually use those as a tool to support learning so you know one of the experiences that i i i had was was helping my partner create a maths lesson and we based it on a video game. So I knew that all of her, her students loved the game Among Us. Um, and if you're not familiar with the game, as a player, you go into different rooms, you do different tasks, um, you get points for that, and you're effectively working to, together to achieve some, some objectives. Knowing that all of the students loved that game, it's like, okay, well, what's in that game? What can we use as a potential hook? Or how can we reference the game so that the students go, ah, oh, I recognize this, okay, Let's sit and do the work. So we actually created uh, a lesson on perimeter, which is what she needed. Obviously, going into rooms and doing tasks inside the game, it's like, well, just redesign all the rooms. So that was, you know, the, the, the effectively the outline of the, the lesson that we created. And then I got a message the next day that said, they're hooked. They love it because they recognize the link to the game. So that was, you know, with a starting point for me to say, okay, how can I use the knowledge and experience that I have. I then started creating some resources and testing them with parents. Again, some of it was based on Minecraft, some of it was based on FIFA. And the parent feedback was kids recognize the reference to the games. Um, so, you know, they want to sit down and, and do that work. So I've now taken that on and said, right, there's an opportunity here to support both parents and teachers utilizing video games in a positive way for learning um, and so yes i've been creating resources um, i've you know been doing other bits and pieces and I'm moving from the traditional games industry stuff that i've been doing which was you know consulting for <clears throat> excuse me for brands and governments into the education space which you know i think as we go through this we'll dive into and you know explore a couple of things that I, i've been doing on that side that's fantastic and a great introduction. Now, you mentioned your background in games and their construction. Can you tell us a bit about some of the games that you've worked on in the past? 
Yeah, so um, I spent two years working at EA Sports on FIFA. Um, so my role was as a community manager. So I was actually the link between the players and the development studio in Vancouver. Um, so when the game was broken, I would get all the irate messages from all the players. Um, there were a couple of death threats on occasion, uh, but I had responsibility for managing a 200,000 online user forum, um, English language. I had a, a small moderation team that I worked with, um, but and I also set up the first influencer program. Uh, at EA. So the bloggers, the YouTubers, so this was 2009-2010. But yes, it was the first iteration of their their Game Changers program that they've now been having um, for a number of years and a number of titles. Uh, Disney, I worked on Disney Universe. Um, So that was the precursor to Disney Infinity. Um, So if you're familiar with Disney Infinity, it's that game where you you get the, the physical characters, physical figures to, to use alongside it. Disney Universe came before that. Uh, it was a bit of a, a platform style game, but it was the first mashup that Disney Diz, did. They, they took all of their IP effectively and put it all together into different game environments. So you as a player would suit up in a character skin and you could have Pirates of the Caribbean next to Lilo and Stitch, next to you know Lion King, next to... And it was the first time that they actually were able to, to do that. They got the sign off internally to, to mash up all those. So that was quite an interesting project. Um, and for that, I was brought in to consult on, again, how to engage an audience, how to build a community, types of things to mechanics, I guess, the gamification type mechanics of, of challenges and points and leaderboards and things like that, that they could potentially utilize to keep the players engaged over time. Yeah, that, that's that's fascinating. And I'm sure there's a lot of people out there listening to this and potentially watching this who are fascinated by it because they play these games and they see these games, whether it's with their children or themselves, but not necessarily the, the what goes on behind it. Now, um, you mentioned something interesting about gamification, uh, and that's an interesting buzzword in education at the moment. Could you elaborate around that and what it means for us? Well, I, I, well what it means for you, I can't answer. I can tell you what it means for me. And, and so gamification is the use of game-like mechanics in a non-game environment. Okay? Which, if I was to give you a couple of examples, you may use it in your school. Dojo points, okay? Or house points or anything like that. Well, that's a game of mechanic. You're giving points for something. It's arbitrary, but you're doing it anyway. You're star of the week. Again, it's, you know, it's something that doesn't necessarily need to be there. You've added it to a non-game context and non-game environments. So that is gamification. All your, your likes on Instagram. Okay. Same sort of thing. It's a gratification thing and it's a mechanic to say, okay, people are interested in what you're doing and, you know, it's, it's giving you a, a buzz on the back of that. So those are the types of things, uh, you know, I mentioned previously, you know, points, leaderboards, challenges, badges, rewards. You know, those are things that fit within the gamification bracket. The other side of that is game-based learning, which is about then using video games to support learning. And I, I, I position this in, in two ways. So one is, you know, we see a lot of uh, Minecraft used as an example. Okay, so Minecraft, uh, primary education, sometimes in secondary as well. And Minecraft is used as a tool to support certain learning objectives. Um, but most people approach that to say, 
I've got a learning objective. Can I find something in the game that will support that? And that's that's one way of looking at it. The other way of which I'm positioning and you know I talk about it in my book is context-based and actually trying to use the game and matching it to the curriculum. Okay. So there's the, almost there's opposite approaches there for game-based learning. Because one is I've got an objective, I've got a curriculum. How do I find something to match that? I'm saying, why not take the game that the kid already loves and actually find ways to link it back to the curriculum? Because, and, and this is what I mentioned in the book, it's if you can take that approach, you can almost work with any game to support any child. Your favorite game may be very different to mine, but if we can find a common thread and a common language, from a teaching perspective, you can support all of the different students. If you just use Minecraft, you're putting everybody into the Minecraft bucket, whether they like it or not. Oh, I like that in terms of we see it from a pandemic point and from an educational point and all this technology. And it's a case of where we're, we're trying to shoehorn things in. And I like, I like how you've approached it, almost trying to flip it on its head. It's like student agency where you've sort of take something they like and they know, and then you're trying to out, you're trying out the learning part to that rather than the other way around. Now you mentioned your book, Watch Us Play is the title of it. I'll just do that. Just do that shameless plug. Just once across the screen. There we go. (laughs) Tell us a little bit about this because I'm sure there are people out there listening and thinking, this sounds good. This sounds like it's going to be a good read and I really want to take some value from it. Yeah, so uh, it's split into to two parts. So I, I mentioned you know, the journey that I've been on and moving into the education space. So I started to write the book from that perspective, um, the, the, the context-based learning and, and looking at the games and trying to link to the curriculum. I created a, a framework around that. So I looked at different video games, looked at key features and and pieces of functionality, and then said, actually, there's sort of six common ones that you may find, and you can link those back to the maths curriculum. Okay, so, okay, how do I do addition, subtraction? Well, if you've got points and levels, you earn points, okay, you can do some, some calculations, and you can create some questions around that. So the first, you know, the first attempt at writing the book was, how do I support people in taking games, looking at them, understanding them, and then saying, ah, okay, I can use these as a hook for different parts of the mass curriculum, uh, which actually then became the second half of the book, incidentally. It's, it's, it's almost gone a reversal. So I started there. And as I was having conversations with parents and testing the resources that I'd been creating, they were like, yeah, this is great. The kids love it. But I've actually got other challenges like device time and how I manage that. So I then started to interview parents and child psychologists to say, okay, well, what are some of the strategies that you found so you have been successful in managing your child's device time? So the first half of the book is about exactly that. It's it's strategies for managing children's device time, helping people understand why they love to play, how to build a stronger relationship with them, how to understand the games that they play, so that if you can get that space you know, into a, a better position, then you can start to think about the learning side. Now, if you're a teacher, obviously you may jump straight to the learning side and, and how to use games to support maths. Uh, but yeah, the, the book is effectively split into those two halves. It sounds like a really good piece of professional development. And I imagine, here's the cynical part here, that there might be some teachers that think screen time is an obstacle, but they also might be wondering whether they need to use technology. Do I need to use Macs or whatever devices to incorporate game-based learning into my lessons? 
So what would you say to someone who might have that concern? Do they need technology to incorporate game-based activities? So the, 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 the definition of game-based learning is using games. Now, you could say, okay, can we use non-video games? Yes, you probably could. A different thought process would be involved in that because you'd need to then think, you know, what's the mechanic that you are creating? What is that that game experience? If you use video games, a lot of that is already there because somebody else has created it for you. So it's like, right, I can I can pick that up. Minecraft, again, a great example is I can take that off the shelf. I can put Minecraft Education put that front and center and say, right, I can, I can build around this. There's the creative aspects. There are lesson plans and, and tool sets already inside the game that teachers can use. Uh, but for your question of, does it need to always be based on spending lots of time using the game, using the devices? And the answer is no. <clears throat> and, and this is one of the key things that I'm, I'm you know, trying to position and the conversations that I have with teachers and, and almost what I write about in the book. If you can understand the game and the context and the things that the player is going to experience inside the game, then you can take that and reference it for anything else and say, you know what, we don't need to play right now. So one of the things that I'm, I'm working on at the minute is, a, is an eight session pack for Minecraft. Um, so co you know, background context, last year I operated a Minecraft schools tournament um, on behalf of one of the government departments here in Dubai. Um, and the, the world that was used for that was a treasure hunt. It was a timed treasure hunt where students had to go around an island, find the treasure spots, dig it up, take, you know, take the gold and the treasure back to their, their pirate ship. Now, that experience of playing means that there are, you know, there's lots of different things going on. You've got your soft skills, but there are other activities. Okay, well, there are, there's coordinates for each of the dig spots. Each of the dig spots has different amounts of treasure. Okay, so there are activities that you can then start to create. Once you've had that initial game experience and you know what's going on, you can say, right, device is down, or while you're doing this, make a note, write down your coordinates, write down how much treasure, right, now put your device down and say, let's do this comparison. Let's create bar charts and tally charts on how much gold you've collected and how many dig spots have four blocks of gold versus five blocks of gold. And, and you can then start to do activities away from the devices, but are still referencing back to that game experience. So to answer, it's a long-winded answer, but you don't necessarily need to use the device all the time and have children playing once you start to understand the game. It sounds almost, and I'm thinking this through in my head now, but so like blended learning 2.0, because when it first came about through COVID, teachers were scratching their heads about how they could incorporate learning using devices. And what it sounds like you're describing now is a really great definition of, of what it should be as in terms of support not the be all and end all, but something to enhance the learning experience, which which is exciting. Like it sounds really, really exciting. And and this is across all phases in terms of through primary and secondary, or do you find that primary do more of it or is it more of a secondary thing? Um, so my experience so far has been primary. Um, so the, the tournament that I ran last year and, and you know the, the, the key starting point for using Minecraft and, and creating resources around that was sort of eight to 11. Um, so years four to six. Um, I have been starting to test some things with years one to three. Uh, but again, the, the challenge there is while they play, what is their level of ability in terms of you know, recording things, writing stuff down, you know, 
there are potentially other challenges associated, not just the ability to play the game, but then some of the activities. It's like, okay, well, how do you structure those activities? What are the objectives? What do you want the students to actually do? And, and you know, what can they do? Um, so it just requires a, a bit of extra thinking there. When they get to you know, years four and above, you'd like to think that they're in a, a, a suitable position uh, in terms of their development to say, right, you know, you know what, I want a whole page of A4. Great. Okay. Right. Let's write about it or let's do a diary entry based on, you know, your experience of playing the game or whatever it may be. They've developed enough to be able to, you know, fulfill those requirements of whatever activity it is that you're creating. So my experience so far, yes, has been purely on primary. I am starting to have conversations around secondary. Secondary is an interesting one because you will probably start to have a wider range of games played by the students. Um, so it's okay. Do you try and use those games or do you say, actually, let's try and get everybody onto one because, you know, in school, we're only permitted to access certain things. Okay, for example, no shooters, um, you know, depending on the age groups and, and what the school permits. So yeah, secondary is is something that I've been looking at. It's It's... It's going to take a little bit of time, at least for me, because it's my method is how do I take the game context and link it back to the curriculum? Now, the higher you go up in the age groups, obviously stuff becomes more complex. So it, it requires that extra thinking to say, well, actually, can I link it back to the game? What are the types of activities? You know, my objectives here that I've got for a, for a lesson or for a topic. Okay, how is that going to work? So I'm still trying to get my head around that. You know, that's that's on me because I'm not a teacher. I'm coming at it from the game side. It's like, you know what? I can spend a, you know a couple of hours with the game and fully understand the game. Okay, how can I you know link that back and try and support teachers with with resources that make sense? Um, so that's something that I'm working on over time. But primary is is a lot easier. Now I've got experience of this with my own two daughters, sort of with games and, and how to use iPads and Minecraft. And I think Minecraft is the one that you see a lot of in STEM. But in terms of that, it's an interesting device for starting CAD or computer aided design. And I like that you've mentioned Among Us earlier as well. Now for adults out there just to show how far the popularity of among us has come like if you've seen the new knives out film with daniel craig yeah yes glass onion then is the new one yes and actually now on bbc there's uh i think it's bbc there's a series called traitors yeah, yeah there's a scene in that film where he sat in the bath and you can actually see that he's playing on the game among us and he's saying he's the world's greatest detective yet can't do this game so in terms of popularity they are really really coming through and showing that they're not just for children but for adults to develop some of those skills that you mentioned earlier um what would you say are some of the biggest challenges we face in bringing sort of game-based learning and some of the gamification components so there are I'd say, uh, oh, yes there are challenges I'm, I'm going to talk about two uh, the first is general buy-in okay the press, negative, just around video games in general, you know, spending time playing, all that sort of stuff. So there needs to be that general shift to say, actually, we understand that the press just likes to talk negative about everything. Okay. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the experience that we will have if we choose to use games in the classroom are going to be negative experiences. So 
if we can make that shift and, you know, whether it's a class teacher, whether it's MLT, SLT, whoever, if we can start to get that buy-in, it's like, you know what? Yeah, try it. See what happens. I can see, you know, schools in other areas having success with this. Let's see what happens. Um, so that's the, you know, the first thing that, that needs to be overcome. The second is generally a mindset thing. Okay. As a teacher, how often do you feel like you have to be the expert? Yeah, I think when I first started teaching, I felt I needed to know everything. Um, but a really good mentor of mine told me, it probably take me five years to get to a point where you know sort of all the content and maybe sort of three to five years more to be able to answer you know, any questions the students come up with. And as I've gotten older and potentially a little bit more wiser, and because of technology, I'm now more comfortable to say no, you know, I don't know everything. And kids are coming out with some really deep questions. And I can say to them, look, guys, you've got a really powerful personal tutor in front of you in your device. And now with OpenAI here, you've got personalization. Why don't you go and find out? I'm here to help you unpack what you discover. You know, and that for me is the, the facilitated learning. Absolutely. And, and that's the key word is that if we're thinking video games, if you are not necessarily an avid player yourself, chances are your students are going to know far more than you will ever know and feel comfortable with. So if you can get into that mindset that says, actually, I just need to be a facilitator. If I've got a lesson plan or a structure and I know the types of activities that I'm going to be doing and you give them some, some free time. So an example that I've mentioned the eight session pack that I'm creating at the minute based on the world that I used for the tournament last year. You know, the way that I've tried to structure that offer for each session is, right, here's an overall you know, learning objective or how we're trying to link it to the curriculum here are three activities, right? Break them all up into teams, you know, get them to into the world, get them to record this. And then it's like, right, you know, bring them back, have that discussion. So it's, it's a loose structure so that it's still student led to an extent, but you then don't need to be the expert. You just need to facilitate. Now, if you start going down the, the route of coding and things like that and, and creative, slightly different, but if you're you're utilizing the game to support other activities and, and linking back to the curriculum, yeah, it's it's don't worry about trying to be the expert because sadly, you're never going to be the experts. Not when it comes to children, devices, gaming, all that sort of stuff. Um, so, you know, if teachers can can get that mindset and say, that's fine, I'm happy being the facilitator. And as you said, say, I haven't got the answer to that, but you know what? You can Google it. I'm sure you can find a video for it or whatever your question is. That is half the battle. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it's, it's just kind of teachers loosening their control. And we're now seeing that a lot in terms of the models and lesson planning, rather than being the sage on the stage sort of stood at the front and delivering, it's now about pushing things with inquiry-based and problem-based learning and allowing students the opportunity to make mistakes. And it sounds like there's a lot going on with this. It's going to incorporate a lot of those skills. Well, absolutely. So the, the experience, sorry, just to, to sort of follow up on that quickly, the tournament experience that I had last year 
because it, it was a treasure hunt, okay? It was timed, but you also had to avoid skeletons. You had to avoid sharks. You had to avoid starving to death, which meant the students were constantly having to work on strategy. And a lot of the teachers who were involved then supported them in creating strategy, having those discussions of what worked, what didn't work, how are we going to improve? What are we going to do next time? So that's where, you know, gaming is great for some of the soft skills development as well. Yeah, it sounds a lot like metacognition sort of with tiered levels. Like, with the top two being well the third one strategic and the fourth one is the highest one is reflection and then actually i was talking to my class today about it just after an assessment and we were going through this process of reflecting on it and then trying to get them to be strategic in their approaches and a lot of these young students just say oh, i'll do more work okay so i'll write more in my answer i'll revise harder or for longer and it's interesting to get them to be more strategic. And, and I spoke with them about invasion games. And for me, as someone who's a big rugby fan, you know, football and the strategy involved. And you've got to design ways to achieve an outcome. Like if route A doesn't work first time around, you know, what else are you going to do? And, and that's why I like games. And as I've said to my students and my own children, if you failed on a game, you know, would you turn it off? Or would you track back and think, right, I now know one way of how not to do it. Absolutely. Yes. And actually games support that in a much better way because, you know, you play a sport, you get something wrong, there's a potential impact. You, you might lose the match, you know, your your peers get irate, you lose a trophy, whatever it may be. For me, I got my head on the wrong side in a tackle playing fullback and broke my neck, you know, but that, that's by the by. Um Games enable you to keep trying. And I reference this in the book. It's like, sometimes you will come up against a baddie and they're, they're too difficult. And it's like, right, I need to go away, improve my character, get better equipment, whatever it is, and then come back. Other times you'll be like, ah, I'm almost there. I just need to keep trying, right? I need to understand how they're beating me, right? I'll do it four five, six times and, and learn the strategy and, and the ways to try and combat that, the moves that I have to make or the timing for something. And then you'll go through the repetition. You'll be working out your strategy and you will eventually over overcome it yeah you'll often see that even with my own girls with the increase in streaming and twitch where, where people are streaming them playing games live so sort of the amount of people they've got watching it is just phenomenal but you can often see it with those sort of first few parts where you know they might die fail fall off and, and they have to come and repeat it if it keeps happening and they have to repeat themselves the speed and accuracy in which they can do those first few stages you know they just put so much practice into them they, their level of expertise just seems to go up until they get to that sticking point and i think that's an important thing about bringing game-based learning into classrooms is that sticking point and they're talking about it in psychology, don't they? That zone of proximal development. And, and you can probably elaborate on this, but it needs to be challenging enough, but not too easy. Flow state. Okay. Okay. So what's flow state? So flow state is, is a state, uh, it's coming from psychology. Uh, you know, I, I, I referenced it in the, in the book as well. It's a case of the activity or the challenge versus skill. Okay. So if you have a level of skill that is at the level of challenge or just below, you can enter flow state where all time disappears because you're focusing and trying to overcome that challenge. You know, if the, the, the challenge is too difficult and you haven't got the skills, you will never reach flow state because you look at it and go, man, I'm never going to be able to do this. Okay. If the challenge is too easy versus your skill level, you get bored. 
Okay, so it's it's and there's a, a couple of, of charts and images that you'll be able to find online, but it's effectively you know almost a, a square and there's a, a a line across it that says if the level of challenge is sufficient against your level of skill, you can enter a flow state where everything you know around you disappears. You're focusing because you know that you're going to be able to overcome that challenge. It may take you a couple of attempts, but it, the, the level of challenge is sufficient for where you are from a skill perspective. So just to try and break that down, what would that activity do? If you could give us an example, what, what would that look like? In the classroom? Yeah, well, <laughs> take it from your experience from games and then some of the things that you've been doing. What would be a good example of that so that people can understand you know, what we mean by that balance of skills and challenge? Yeah. So the conversation we've just had about trying to, to beat a boss or a buddy and, and having a couple of attempts at it and either getting, there's no way, you know, he won, you know, he hits me once and I'm dead. Okay. Well, therefore your level of skill isn't sufficient to overcome because you need to improve your character. Okay. Now, if you improve your character, your level of skill, i.e. tied with abilities, potentially of your character, your equipment, things like that becomes a lot closer to the level of challenge. You know, if you're in a game where actually you've you've worked up to level 100, ex- easy example, and you then go into an area of the world that has level one enemies, that's just like, well, that's really easy. I've just, it's not exciting because I'm now too powerful for them. So therefore, there's that skill and challenge imbalances. You are too skillful for the challenge that's put in front of you. So games present that in a lot of different ways. That's That's one example. The Minecraft tournament example, because that was timed, it was a 15-minute match working as a team, okay, the students knew what they had to do. They had to obviously find the treasure. They had to avoid the, the obstacles and the challenges. But for them, because they knew what they needed to do, they understood how to play Minecraft. Their skill level was sufficient to try and work against the challenge. And the challenge in this context was dig up while not getting killed and do it in a time limit. Okay, so for them, it was easy for them to focus and almost lose that sense of time because they had sufficient skill to be able to go against the challenge that was presented. Okay, my my cogs are whirring away in this now in terms of how I'd apply that into secondary. And the thing is, I suppose, I look at it like a breakout room perspective to some extent. We can use OneNote and PowerPoint to do this, but I can see students having to answer that first question or complete a task to gain a point or upskill themselves, which takes you then on to the second part. Um, yeah, and all of these require different skills or might link up into different challenges to complete different, you know, and you're then completing different challenges and you have to get to certain points to unlock areas and get out of one room and be able to move into the next so for me, sort of as I think about this, we can use OneNote, we can obviously use PowerPoint, and you can lock the pages with codes. It's about them being able to go, right, you need to answer these tasks or the things I learned from them within a time limit. And that will give you then the codes or skills to take into the next challenge. And you can use whatever you've earned previously, like tools, to help complete this and, and so on and so forth. So it's got me thinking, sort of just listening to you about it, like, it's already got me, you know, how can I apply these parts? And I, I see it in primary all the time with my own kids, uh, things like leaderboards and all these different things. And I know some people out there will disagree and say, look, I don't agree with the competition. But as most psychologists would say, life's not fair. 
Um, I was listening to the Diary of the CEO podcast recently and it had Professor Stephen Peters who wrote The Chimp Paradox on it. And one of the things he writes in that is that life is not fair. Yeah, mine's called Clarence. Say that again. My chimp is called Clarence. It sits just here. <laughs> yeah, I've never, I've never named mine. Uh, I'm going to think about that now. But I think actually having that competition, having that scoreboard for a term or so, it's just a simple way of getting engagement. And then for the ones at the top, I can make this task for the kids to talk, you know, to make it more engaging. And then for the ones at the bottom who don't have those skills yet. Uh, uh, well, they no, no, see that, but that can be very risky. Okay. And, and, the, and the reason I say that is one of the things that I've created for the book, and it's based on uh, BJ Fogg's behavior model. So he's a, a Stanford professor of psychology. Um, so his model is BMATS, which is behavior is based on motivation, action, and, and trigger. Uh, so I've then taken that and gone, well, if I'm thinking about this from a game perspective and somebody who plays game, uh, how might this work? Uh, and I actually created the, the DARE model, which is desire is based on ability, reward, and ease, okay? So if the work is really difficult, i.e. There's, there's a hundred questions that I've got to work through, it's not easy. If I've got the ability, but I've got a hundred questions, my level of desire yeah, might not be there. If the reward for doing that activity isn't sufficient, my level of desire is gonna drop. Now, to increase my level of desire, if I have the ability, but it's not easy, what do I need to do? I need to supersize the reward. And, and so you can play with these levers. So those people that you said at the bottom, you also need to think about, is that base that are they at the bottom because they don't have the ability? Do they have the ability, but the reward isn't sufficient, so therefore they're not putting in the time and effort to do what they need to do, i.e., are they bored? Okay, you know, that's potentially one measure. They're not engaging with the tasks that are in front of them. And therefore, they're not meeting the requirements because actually they've just tuned out because it's not engaging them. You know, that and that's where it's difficult as a teacher because it's like what's right for each individual student? What makes them tick? And that's that's a huge challenge. And, you know, for as long as there is time, that will always be. But I think it's a really refreshing way to look at it and a new way to look at it in terms of the DARE model, because we have a lot that say into especially secondary attainment in progress uh, and what the students are making. And it's often from a teacher's point of view, what, you know, what we ask is, what are you doing? You know, what are your lessons? What do teachers do? And actually to be able to reverse engineer that question instead of what we do, let's ask our students, what do you need to know and think of? Mm. So here's a great example. Okay. I took French for GCSE, okay? This is many years ago now. I was in the top set, okay? The material wasn't exciting. The, the way that the teacher presented it wasn't exciting. I had the option of taking a higher paper or the lower paper. I opted for the lower paper so I could only get a maximum of a C. I also used to roll up my blazer and use it as a pillow and go to sleep because the lessons were boring. Okay, so again, it's that challenge of where is the child or where is the student coming from in this overall environment, you know, and again, it may be that we as teachers and, and educators think great lesson plan. Okay, and we can hook 60% of the students because we've had conversations with them. But some of the students, as, as, as harsh as it is, may look at it and go, nah, it's not for me. 
And that's the challenge in terms of what's that saying in terms of you've got to try and be all things to all people. Yeah, and it's, it's really tough. I, you know, I, I take my hat off to, to teachers because you know, I see the work that you do, you know, the conversations a lot of my friends are teachers. It's, it's like, it's not easy. No, it isn't. But you mentioned earlier teaching and said how you got into this. So your partner was doing maths. Yeah, so she's a, a primary age class teacher. Yeah, because one of the things you've also been doing, which is fantastic, by the way, and we've yet to talk about this, is the Class Bridges Project. And I was wondering what took you down that math route more than any other subject? So the, the Among Us lesson plan was, was a starting point. Um, and, you know, I've got nieces and nephews who are sort of nine, ten years old who play video games as well. So it was like, okay, can I create some stuff to potentially support them with maths? But also because... I failed my university degree because I couldn't do the maths. Okay. So I went to university. My first course was computer graphics because uh, I wanted to try and create the worlds that, you know, I'd been playing when I'd been playing games. Um, and one of the modules was 2D and 3D graphics. So it was about you know, being able to manipulate and move things in the world and, and how you work on those transitions. So granted, it was complex maths, but the fact that I failed that module twice meant that I had to change course, which in hindsight is a blessing because I then went on and did computer business. Um, but you know it, that experience of not being able to do the maths, I'm trying to prevents children going through that same situation. And for those of you who have never heard of this before, I mean, it sounds like an absolutely phenomenal project in terms of what you're doing here. Can you describe it for us? Yeah, so Class Bridges is the, the name of the project. It's, it's effectively the vehicle that I've created to say, okay, if I'm going to create some resources for parents, you know, that they can potentially do with their child at home in sort of 15 minute chunks, you know, there's some practice sheets based on different games or the eight session pack that I'm creating based on, on Minecraft and linking back to the curriculum. So all of the sorts of resources that I'm creating for, for both teachers and parents will end up sitting under that the class bridges umbrella so you know, part of that is just pure maths over time it may extend into other other subjects um, you know that's something that teachers have already asked me about it's like well how, how could this work for for history or for science or for english and it's like well i i can get to that i'm just i'll start with maths because that was the natural starting point for me um, but yes class bridges is that that vehicle and that umbrella where i'll be putting forwards and creating resources there may be other bits and pieces that then tie in over time. It sounds like you've got big plans and big ideas, which is very, very exciting. And that leads me nice into this final question I have for you, which is about the future, right? in terms of how you see these things evolving and, and what it is to be embedded into the future of education. Great question. Um, there may be another Minecraft tournament on the horizon uh, for, for schools to participate in. Uh, we'll wait and see on that one. Uh, so again, so that could be another opportunity to start building those relationships with the schools and helping them understand, you know, if they're not yet using games, there's an opportunity for them and, and get their students to compete, the opportunity for a trophy and, and those sorts of things. Um, I guess for me, it's building a community. You know, I, I mentioned I'm not a teacher, but I have knowledge and experience from the industry and the things that I've done. So it's like, how can I support people and, and give them access to that? So one of the things I'm trying to do is actually create a community of, of teachers and parents to say, right, well, you know, how can we tap into each other's experiences and knowledge? You know, uh, the other night I, I had a phone call with um, a lady from the US who has set up her own esports and gaming club 
in her district in California and is then supporting other schools in understanding how they can implement things and use it as a, as a way to engage the students. Um, you know, I had a conversation with the guy at Microsoft who created some of the worlds that we see in Microsoft, uh, in, sorry, in Minecraft. So, you know, I'm trying to say, right, how can we actually work together to support each other? Can I create that community and, and then, you know, make resources available so that I guess if we're looking at it from the teaching perspective, teachers feel more confident utilizing games to support learning. Amazing. Like you mentioned esports there, and that's something we've not touched upon either. That kind of reminds me of like this is a short clip with Steve Harvey when he's on Family Fortunes. And there's this, uh, it can only be a teenager at the time comes up, and they always go through and ask him, What do you do? It's like, I'm a gamer. And Steve Harvey looks at him like generally most middle aged dads do, just like, What? And then it's something like some time has passed, like whether it's four or five years, um, and he's back on it, and he's and he's there talking to him, and he's like, my kids know who you are. It's like you're this top three gamer in esports in the world, you know. And now there's been this huge shift, and even in that into schools as well. And um, we've got a huge amount of experience with this. What would be your advice for teachers wanting to start and develop esports in their schools? Absolutely. So when I said I've been involved in the industry for 22 years, it's actually I've been involved in esports for 22 years. Um, so I started at 16 playing with friends at school. We created our, our own team and started uh, playing in tournaments and live events. So esports is my, my core background. But yes, excuse me. <clears throat> We're starting to see a lot more of it in education because it supports all those soft skills. You know, having to work as part of a team, think about, okay, how are we going to outwit our opponents and, and building those strategies, you know, the communication, the leadership, it, it's all there. And it's not just about the playing side either. Obviously, you know, some of those soft skills are, are involved in the, the playing side. But if you create an esports club, you can have other roles that students can fulfill, team managers, analysts, commentators, graphic designers, you know, event operators. There are things that that, that esports and competitive experience enable students to, to get involved in. So that's why a lot of schools are starting to look at it to say, well, for those who are interested in playing, that's one option. But actually, if we create it as a club and as an environment, there are other things that students can start to get involved in. And, you know, they may be taking a, a media course. OK, well, great. You've got experience, actually, that's going to be beneficial if we want to set up the streaming. You know, let's try and get you involved. Um, so, yeah, you know, esports e as an activity can actually support in, in lots of different ways. I'm um, I'm not in any way a gamer and I think the only time I actually got into them was probably when I was at university and it was FIFA and it was Halo on the Xbox 360 and times are obviously very different now probably quite drastically but if you are wanting to start something and I know that you said earlier about student's choice but let's just say you, you wanted to set something up and you're not sure what sort of games to start with what would be your recommendation? Great question um, so I would say there's two key things if you've got the students coming to you, that's that's great because it means you already have an audience there. So one of the first things is understand what do they already play, okay? From that, it enables you to go and have more structured conversations with you know, SLT, whoever you need to get approval from to say, you know, students have asked for this. I'm interested in doing it. Can you give it the, the nod of approval? Um, and if you can get that information from the students of what they're already doing, you know, how they're spending their time already, you know, what they are familiar with in the esports space, you can take all of that information and say, look, it's not just a case of they've seen everybody else doing it. 
these students actively do it in their spare time. So, you know, if we can offer this in school, okay, here are going to be the added benefits for that. And, you know, it supports those conversations. The second thing is to say, <clears throat> recruit more people. Um, you know, the conversations that I've had is, well, you can set it up on your own, okay? Uh, and that works, you know, in, in the first instance where you're, you're going quite small. The fact that you are taking on gaming, means that probably, as much as they hate to say it, 70, 80% of your student body may be gamers, okay? So if you suddenly make it available, you may get an influx of people who want to get involved, which means you as one person will struggle. So think about who else can you you lean on? You know, is it specialists? You know, I mentioned media as an example. So can you, you know, go to a, a, a subject leader and say, this is what I'm thinking of doing. There may be some students on your side who want to get involved because, you know, there's there's other elements. It's not just the playing. You know, how can we work together on this? Can we, get, you know, give the students some time? Can I get access to your resources or, or to your knowledge? You know, can you spend a bit of time and, and come and help me if it's an after-school club? And just try and see who else within the faculty is, is interested in getting involved. You know, FIFA is easy because... Nonviolence. Rocket League is another great one. Uh, FIFA, you can do 2v2s... You can do three v threes for Rocket League, um, so you know they're they're good starting points. Um, depending on the age group that you're going for, Minecraft you can do things with. Um, you know there are capture the flag and, and various other game modes that you can use for Minecraft. Um, going beyond that, some of the strategy games if you don't want to touch the shooters. Um, so things like League of Legends are quite good. Again, 5v5, working as a team. If you've got a computer lab that is full of PCs and you can get the game installed on there, it's free to play. So, you know, that's something that students can potentially sit down uh, and play. They Each player will become, or they'll select a champion each champion has different abilities. So it's then about working out what abilities does my champion have? How does that contribute to the overall team dynamic? How do I complement somebody else's abilities? Okay, how do we work towards the objective? And the objective is a simple, you, you know, you've probably played these games yourself in the past. It's I have to destroy my opponent's base or they destroy mine. Simple as that. Okay, and yes, there are there are nuances to that and things that you do inside the game to support that, but that's the overall objective. Thank you for that, Philip. You know, I really, really appreciated learning from you and talking to you and seeing all these different avenues and paths, not just technology, but all the different things we can are using the technology for, like the games and how we can incorporate them into the classroom to enhance our students' learning experience. It's just fascinating. And everything you're doing in terms of, as a non-teacher, to really put in that time and effort into these projects, it's amazing, like really amazing. So I really appreciate you coming on and sharing that knowledge and wisdom with us. So thank you. No problem. Thank you for having me. And hopefully, yes, it's been useful just to not necessarily have all the answers, but just to shift that thinking a little bit, say, oh, okay, there, there may be opportunities here to, to use gaming to support the students. Yeah, it's, it's definitely got me thinking. So if anyone wants to reach you or follow you, um, what's the best socials for you? Um, so probably Twitter and Instagram. Uh, so I'm Philip Ride on both of those. Uh, so hopefully easy to find. Um, elsewhere, you know, philipride.com is my site where I put a couple of things up. Uh, there is a mailing list where I, you know, every week or so give thoughts on either what's been happening or, you know, the resources that I've created or the conversations that I've had. You know, some of it is education related. Some of it is parenting and understanding and, and building that relationship with children 
around gaming. Um, so, you know, that's another uh, resource that's available. The Class Bridges website, so that's classbridges.com. That's where I'll be, you know, posting the, the lesson packs and the, the maths worksheets and, and things like that. So, yeah, those are the, the main ones. But if you start on social, I will be posting then links to everything else. So you don't necessarily need to remember it all now. I'll make sure that we add all these into the descriptions. And finally, if anyone wants to get hold of your book, uh, where is it available? So at the minute, um, I'm working on getting it into the, the UAE. I'm going through the approval process uh, to get you know, permission to, to get it printed here and, and distribute it locally. But if you do want to get a copy, you can order it on Amazon and then ship it in. Obviously, if you're in other parts of the world, it is available on Amazon.com, Amazon.co.uk and some of the other major Amazon uh, country specific stores perfect thank you ever so much for that philip i really appreciate it no problem thank you and that's a wrap for today's episode of the international classroom i hope you enjoyed hearing from philip about the world of gaming and esports don't forget to check out his book watch us play which provides practical tips for managing children's game time and improving their math skills if you've enjoyed this episode please consider leaving a review and sharing with your friends and colleagues Join us next time for more engaging conversations about the international classroom.